Good evening, beautiful people. I want to just uh, take one minute, one moment, to, um, to pray a prayer that was on my iPad when we were in prayer time and then skipped over and didn't come back to it. And so, let me do that right now. Heavenly Father, Lord, I lift up my brother Jack to you, Father. I thank you for him, Lord. I thank you for his commitment to our church. I thank you, Father, for um, his tireless service to the saints of Chapel Hill. And, and Father, I, I thank you for some of the progress that's been made as he's battling his illness. I, I, we pray for some of the things that are left to be resolved, but we just give you thanks and praise, Lord, for the excellent care that uh, he's been given and is receiving and we pray, Father, you just continue to heal his body. Lord, I thank you for his, his spirit, which is a great encouragement to all of us. I thank you, Lord, for the ministry of Trish as she is by her husband and continuing to minister to him. What a wonderful and godly example that is. And so, Father, just bless the Paschals, Father. I thank you for the blessing that they are to our church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry, I meant to get that in. Love you, people. And it's just so good to see you here, Jack. Every time I see you, I just break out in a big smile because it's just God's will. Okay, speaking of God's will, Jacob returns to Bethel. Woohoo! <laughs> We're in uh, chapter 35 of Genesis, and we may even uh, touch, in a very summary fashion, chapter 36. We won't uh, dissect every verse of chapter 36, but... There are a few things I want to draw out in that chapter. But for now, we are in chapter 35. And uh, we'll just pick it up in verse 1. Maybe read over to about... Uh, eh, let's read over to about verse 7 for now. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who is answering me in the day of my distress, who answered me in the day of my distress and have been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. I'll tell you what, let's stop right there for now. Now, where we left off last time, um, oh, okay. Where we, where we left off last time was Jacob and his family, quite a large company of people now, it was, in, was in Shechem. And this is where they had the terrible exchange with a man named Shechem who abused and, and basically raped uh, Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And, and then the sons, two of the sons of, of Jacob, went and murdered basically the whole city and and we don't know exactly how long they were in Shechem, but God, when God had originally told him to leave Paddan Aram and to come back into the promised land, where he was supposed to return to was Bethel all along. 
But he stopped and stayed for a, for a, a time in Shechem. And really, as you remember from the previous chapters, um, well, chapter 33 and 4, that time that they spent in Shechem, which was a detour from God's will, was a time of gross carnality that resulted in rape, it resulted in murders, it resulted in disgracing uh, the Lord based upon the way in which um, Simeon and Levi represented the family by murdering all these people in Shechem. And, uh, and so now the Lord is speaking to Jacob again saying, arise and go to Bethel because that's really where the Lord wanted him to be all along. And I think this really, this, this reminder of, of the Lord to Jacob to go back to the place that he was originally called to go back to kind of indicates on Jacob's part a period of backsliding, a period of, of being willful against the commands of the Lord. I mean, that's really what backsliding is. It's, it's whenever we, we might be tracking with what the Lord's will is for our life, but there comes a point in time where we become willful, we become self-reliant, we become selfish in, in the truest sense of the word, thinking about self, and we depart from what the Lord has for us in our lives. And I think if you've been a Christian very long and you can kind of take inventory of the years in which you've been walking in the truth, you could perhaps find some of those periods in your life where you were maybe uh, not necessarily walking in the Lord's way. Maybe you were going your own way. And you, you probably can point out some of the very worst times in your life as a Christian being in those times when you were kind of walking in the wilderness, when you were doing your own thing, when you were not in the center of God's will. You did not go to the place that God had for you, whether that was a physical place or whether that was a, um, a spiritual place. And, and this is... This is the challenge of the, of the Christian life. We talked all about this in our lesson on Sunday in Colossians chapter 3 about the fact that we are, you know, we are to keep our eyes fixed on heaven. That is our home. We are pilgrims passing through this place. We are not to take on the affectations of things in the world, put our affections in the things of the world, because what we'll find ourselves doing is conforming to that image. And instead, we're on, we're on a path of sanctification that's to conform us into the image of Christ. And this was really what was going on in Jacob's life and therefore in his family. Now, this is something that the Apostle Paul speaks to us about in many places, including the one we saw last Sunday in Colossians 3. But we saw not that long ago in Galatians advice from Paul about what we as believers are to do concerning a brother or sister who is the backslider. And, and I think what turns off a lot of non-believers or, or sort of believers in name only about the church in general is the way sometimes they see the church, the greater church, handle people who have fallen into a backslidden situation. They basically go in there and ban at the wounded. They, they fillet them. They crucify them. They destroy their reputation. They make things very public. They make things very ugly. And, and this is exactly opposite of the advice that, that Paul the Apostle and therefore the Holy Spirit gives to us concerning one who we might know in our midst. And this has happened, you know, many times over the years in our church where somebody or other who is a, a 
you know, regularly attending member of our church, all of a sudden through whatever the circumstance, usually it's a, a change of life circumstance that's challenging for them. Maybe they're overwhelmed in a trial or in a relationship that's been fractured or whatever, and they fall into a backslidden situation. And so what's the prescription that, that the Lord gives us? It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, there's a couple of key words in there. First of all, he's saying you who are spiritual, and that's an important aspect because if you're, if you're carnal, the way in which you're going to restore somebody, if you even want to call it that, is from a very self-righteous posture, which is not the Lord at all. But for someone who is spiritual, you have the spirit of Christ, which is a spirit of, first of all, grieving over sin, hating sin, loving the sinner, and being grieved over the, the ravages that sin may have brought to that brother or sister. And so he says, restore in a spirit of gentleness. Now, that doesn't mean a spirit of compromise. It doesn't mean a spirit of capitulation, like, well, it wasn't that bad or anything like that. No, call sin what it is. It's, it's separating. It's a separating factor from the believer and God. It's, it's something that, that dishonors God. It's something that Jesus hated. It's something that he died for. So it's a big deal. But the way in which you destroy, the, restore the person is with a spirit of gentleness, which is to say you want them to understand that the atonement that Jesus provided on the cross was sufficient to cover every sin and that the sin that that brother or sister may have fallen into, as bad as it was, and I mean, look at, look at the litany of stuff we've already found out about Jacob and his family. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And yet, here's God calling him to Bethel, you know, house of God, um, wanting to restore, wanting to build him up. And this is, this is the model for us when we have a brother or sister who is in that place um, because at the end of the day, we want them to become once again useful for the kingdom of the Lord, to be a, an example to others, to have a heart that is not hindered by their own sin so that they can they can see other people through the lens of Christ, which says there's a sinner in need of salvation. There's somebody who needs the word of God. I can bring that to them. You can't be in that posture when you're backslidden, right? You know, back, backsliding is one of the great impediments to ministry. And so, you know, just to look at Jacob's situation here, what's the Lord basically telling him when he says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there? And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. He's referring back to as, as Jacob was running from his brother and knew that if, if he hung around, his brother would ultimately kill him. And that's, and that's when he, he takes off towards Paddan Aram. And he has that night where he wrestles with God. Uh, or I'm sorry, not, not at that point. But he, he was told to get out of the land of Canaan but before he did, he had an encounter with the Lord there in Bethel. And now the Lord is, is calling him back. In, in a real sense, he's calling him back to his first love. 
And this is, this is really uh, the same message we get if we're in a backslidden situation. Is, it's the same message, frankly, that the Lord gives to the church of Ephesus in the letters to the seven churches that you find in Revelation. In chapter 2 of Revelation, um, the Lord is speaking to the church at Ephesus. And between the fourth and sixth verses of Revelation 2, after, after, by the way, calling out a number of things that the church at Ephesus was doing well, they were working hard for the Lord. They were, they were calling out heresy when they saw it. They were not uh, tolerating false teaching. He, he said that, you know, you, you also ha hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. So he was crediting them with having discernment for false teaching. He was crediting them with being busy about the work of the ministry. And yet he says this in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 6. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now you'd say, well, a church that's got a keen eye for false teaching and a church that's busy about the work of God, how is it that they could have left their first love? What is the Lord seeing in their ministry that uh, would leave one with the conclusion that they've left their first love? And let me tell you, that problem is a lot easier to happen than any of us could ever imagine. What he's, I believe what the Lord is referring to is that their love for Christ morphed into mere religion. This is, this is something that has really crippled the church. Why else would the, would the Congress of United Methodists come together to vote on a position that they will take relative to a doctrinal statement that God has clearly made in his word? What's there to vote on? We don't get a vote on truth, right? I mean, where do we get off with that kind of thing? And yet... All kinds of, uh, well, here's a perfect example. A, a divinity doctoral, doc, uh, doctorate student in the UK preached a sermon a week ago in which he drew from a painting of Jesus where Jesus had a you know, wound on his side, as we know, Scripture says he was pierced, and 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 he had blood running out in the in the depiction of the painting. Blood was running out of the wound and running towards his pelvic region, and from that, this this divinity student was preaching that this is basically a depiction of a a, a trans a trans Christ, a Christ who had both female and male um, you know, attributes. And this so upset a lot of the congregants that they raised it with the archbishop and this and that. But the, the fact, and, and by the way, that, that sermon was defended by the, the cleric, the, the professor who was sponsoring this, this young person's uh, doctrinal, doctoral uh, candidacy. These kind of things happen in the church when people depart from a love 
of the relationship with Jesus Christ and they, and they turn it into mere religion. And I think religion has more to do with turning people away from Christ than anything else, period. Even more than selfish carnal desire because they see the way in which religion relates to their savior and they see nothing but hypocrisy. And, it, and, and that's an extreme, some of these examples I'm giving are extreme cases. But there are other cases of this same kind of leaving one's first love that happened. We all saw it, didn't we? We all saw this when 2020 came around. And now all of a sudden the world's being locked down. Then we've got protests in the street. We've got, you know, the riots that took place after the George Floyd incident. And I can tell you, People in this community, people in this church that were not part of our church previously left the churches they were at because they saw a distinct change in the ministry philosophy and emphasis of their otherwise good church that they had attended for years. What was the change? The change was now that the focus no longer was on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It was now on a social agenda of things we need to do as the church to make the world better. And there's nothing wrong with a desire to make the world better, but the example that Jesus left us is you make the world better by preaching to one heart at a time, by changing people from the inside or letting the Lord change people from the inside out by bringing the case of Christ before them. It's not about, let's talk about what, what's going on with the police department. Let's not talk about what's going on in Congress. Let's not make it our agenda to, um, you know, toss in all of the word salad of all of the buzzwords of the day and pick up all those causes and do it in the name of Jesus. Jesus didn't ask us to do that. Jesus wants to have a relationship with people. And when people have a relationship with Jesus, they are... By definition, they are better members of society. And the more people that are better members of society because Jesus is the ruler of their lives, you'd be surprised how the society becomes better ordered, how uh, the level of crime goes down. And so you look at what's going on in Jacob's life. He had had that wonderful moment in Bethel before he left for Pet Anaram. He had this, well, he, he made a deal basically with God where he said that, if God, if you are with me in this quest that I'm on and uh, you, you walk with me that whole way, then you'll be my God and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, in the years that ensued, he got away from that. And then this all culminated in the horrible time that he spent in, in Shechem. And now he's finally getting his family ready to go to where the Lord had called him to. And we read there in verse 2 that Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Interesting. We know that before he left Laban's house, before he left Laban's control, Rachel, his wife, one of his wives, took the family deities, the family gods, the family idols that, that were part of Laban's household. We don't get any commentary about why she did that. There's a lot of speculation about why she might do that. Um, but I believe that it's at least in part due to the fact that she herself 
probably respected those deities enough to have a heart of worship towards them. Now remember, uh, the law has not been given yet. Uh, Moses has not led the people yet. There's no priesthood or anything. You know, God's relationship with what would become Israel was really so far between three men. Jacob, his father, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abram. And so people that were in that, the environs of those three men, all they knew about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob told them. Because we don't get a lot of commentary about anyone else's encounters with the living God, direct encounters with the living God. So it's not a stretch to think that Rachel took those deities or those idols because they were significant to her spiritually. And we know based on kind of the loose way that Jacob was governing his home. I mean, we, we did not get the impression up till this point that Jacob was a, was a diligent, conscientious, conscientious, spiritual leader of his home. I mean, the, the, the lack of any reaction on his part when his daughter is raped uh, stands out as, as shocking. And the, the, the lack of a manner of dealing with the two sons who did this horrible thing to the, peop, the men of Shechem also stands out as an indication of the weakness of Jacob as a leader of his home. And so it's not hard to imagine that idol worship within his household was prevalent, maybe even rampant. And maybe he just kind of went with it. Maybe he didn't have as keen an awareness of God's desire to have exclusivity in the spiritual lives of Jacob and his family. And so th this, is, this is finally coming into focus for Jacob when he says to his household, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, change your garments. Now we know that imagery that exists throughout the whole Bible uses the imagery of garments to reflect a, a, a standard of righteousness or a level of righteousness. And so before we come to Christ, our righteousness is as filthy rags, isn't it? And when we come to Christ, he takes away our ashes and he gives us beauty. He gives us uh, linen clean and white. Um, our, our, you know, we're, we're washed white as snow, so to speak. And, and so when he says, purify yourselves and change your garments there's a spiritual implication there there may have actually been a material implication there and that perhaps in the way in which some of them uh, the apparel that some of them wore it may have been a, a concession to one of these foreign gods we don't know but uh, but certainly this idea of idolatry in their midst would stand as a direct impediment to the spiritual connection that God wants to have with Jacob and his people. And this is something we need to take careful note of because idols, as you know and I know, idols are not just little carved pieces of rock or wood. Idols are anything that would stand between us and pure, unadulterated, and exclusive worship of God. And in our time, uh, there are people who do worship, do worship little material things. The guy immediately to our left over here on the other side of the post office makes a living selling crystals and things made of crystal because people place spiritual significance on those things. Um, but for most of us, for most of the world, idols usually take the form of something that, at least on its surface, 
doesn't have a connection to spirituality at all, but it does. If you are keenly and sharply focused on building material wealth, acquiring material things, that's an idol in your life. If you are involved in a codependent relationship where the sun will not come up unless a certain person is in your life, by your side, doing your bidding or whatever, or letting or, or allowing you to do their bidding, that's an idol. If you are somebody who must be thought of in a positive light so much that all you do 24-7 is, is groom your image, and this has become a, an explosion of an industry, people now have a, a business title, uh, social media influencer. It's like, what is that? Why, that's somebody who presents themselves on social media in a way such that other people will aspire to be like them or will take their example and overlay it on their own lives. And this becomes something that, that people have not only made a career out of, but have made ridiculous sums of money doing it. The so-called being famous for being famous, which was authored by Kim Kardashian. Thank you very much. But this, this whole idea of idolatry is something that is so pervasive and dangerous that the worst mistake we can, we can make is to think that, well, I'm a Christian, so I don't have idols in my life. Well, you'd be surprised how people are kept from worshiping God, studying his word, fellowshipping with the saints, serving in some capacity because of something in their life that if you looked them straight in the eye and said, you've elevated this higher than God, haven't you? They'd have to agree with you. They would have to say that the car, the boat, the cottage, the this, the that is really their focus most of the time. So this idea of why is, why is it now that, that Jacob is telling his family, put away these things, put away the foreign gods, let us arise up, go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. We don't know the significance of why the earrings had to be relinquished. Could have been because they have some spiritual significance relative to a foreign god. We don't know that. Jacob hid them under a terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. What he's doing or what he's realizing is that you cannot approach a God, uh, make an altar to God, uh, make supplication before God, present yourself before God, uh, be contrite before. You can't do any of that if you have an idol in your life because you have put up a barrier. It's not that God's ran away from you. It's that you have put up a barrier between you and God, because you've got this other thing between you and him. God doesn't want some of your time. He doesn't want some of your heart. He doesn't want some of your attention. He doesn't want some of your devotion. He wants all of you. And if you're going to have a true encounter with God, you've got to be surrendered to him. And so Jacob is trying to groom his family to a place where, hey, we can go before God together. We can make this altar. We, we can we can approach God. And I would urge you, hey, we've got communion this Sunday. Okay, so today's Wednesday. You've got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning to prepare your hearts. 
to have an encounter with him, to come before the Lord. To Look, there's junk that collects in all of our hearts, right? There's junk that collects in our lives. Be honest with yourself and be transparent with God because you have no choice. He knows everything anyway. But there's nothing, I think, more refreshing, more energizing, more, more cleansing than praying real to the Lord. If you are praying a prayer of confession, bring it out. You don't have to go in a little wooden box and open a little window and tell it to somebody else. You just need to skip before the Lord, commiserate with him. God, this thing is in my life. This is really dogging me. I feel powerless against this. I don't know how to deal with this person. I know I've, I've mishandled that. I've not represented you well in our relationship, and I'm struggling with this. Help me with this, God. Lord, I ask your forgiveness for my weakness in this situation, but I know that in my weakness, you're strong. Please, Lord, bring it. Bring it big time in my life. Illuminate me with your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Let it be known that it is not me, it's you. I mean, when you pray those kind of prayers, man, they are powerful. And we have to be clinical when it comes to idols in our life. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 18, verses eight and nine. He says, look, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now, obviously, he is not promoting maiming of oneself or anything like that. He is using some pretty radical imagery to convey the determination and, and the, the, the radical commitment to ridding ourselves of things that get between us and God. And, and what, else, what else would we expect him to say? So picking up in verse 6, Jacob came to Luz, which is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. God of the house of God is basically what it means, um, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. And, and by the way, uh, just, just to mention a little geographical oddity here or factoid, that Shechem was really only about 20 miles away from Bethel. It wasn't like he had to go to the other side of the world. It wasn't that he had to go into another country. In fact, we could, we could wonder why in the world didn't he just go the last 20 miles originally? But again, I think there was carnality that influenced that decision. Uh, it's interesting because um, we saw there in verse 5 that when he journeyed to Shechem or to uh, Bethel finally, that the, there was terror in the hearts of the cities that were around him so that they didn't pursue the sons of Jacob. Because remember now, as Jacob is moving with his entourage, they've got a lot of wealth. Wealth was measured in livestock, and they had a lot of it. And yet these surrounding cities, they didn't dare come against Jacob and his sons, because maybe it was reputation, maybe they heard what happened in Shechem. Um, but also, we, we got to understand that God gave him favor, not because he deserved it, not because, well, look, this is like my most sterling servant here, so I'm going to protect him. No, he was a rogue, but God said, I chose him because of my, my plan, my grace. And so he, he showed him favor. And so they get to Bethel, they build the altar there, um, and, and they're, they're memorializing what God had done when he appeared to Jacob previously before he, when he was fleeing from Esau and going to Padam Aram. 
Now we get, um, we get news in verse 8 of a woman named Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. Remember, Rebecca is Jacob's mother. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bekut, which means the oak of weeping. Now, we don't have any other mention of this woman, Deborah, anywhere else. We haven't encountered her up till now. What we get a clear indication of in verse 8 is that this person was very dear to the family. There are those uh, commentators and scholars that believe that although Deborah was the nurse of Rebecca, perhaps she came when Isaac first went and got her and that she came along with Rebecca at that point, that somehow she ended up in the household of Jacob and was well known to them and loved by them. We don't know. It's a, just a very cryptic reference that doesn't have any backstory that we can rely upon. But nevertheless, um, it's reported here that when she died, there was a great deal of sorrow and they, they um, named a place uh, after where, you know, where she was buried, the Oak of Weeping. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and your descendants after you I give this land. And then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. Now, this, um, this is interesting because remember that God had already given Jacob the name Israel. We saw that back in chapter 32. That uh, this was on that evening when Jacob wrestles with God. And, um, and then after that, the Lord gives him the name Israel but then we don't hear that reference much between chapter 32 and here, where God once again gives him the name. Now, he probably felt the need to give it to him again because between the time when he first gave it to him till now, he was acting more like a Jacob than an Israel. And so, and so uh, he gives it to him again at a point in time where, um, where God is now repeating the, the, the promise that ultimately was first given to Abraham, then extended to Isaac, now it's being extended to Jacob. This repetition of this promise, and again, for those that, that have this mindset of replacement theology and believing that the promises that God made to Israel really were to a spiritual Israel and they don't apply to the, the people that, that have descended down from uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it just flies in the face of the literal truth of Scripture because time and again, I mean, this promise was made very specifically to very specific people, uh, you know, multiple times, and it was made in each case to each of the three patriarchs. Something that struck me today as I was studying through this was God is omnipresent, right? It's everywhere. And yet, geography is important to God. God, God is very specific about geographic places, things that must happen in the places. Why did God call him to Bethel? Why, what, 
It doesn't matter where Jacob is. God's there too, right? Why, why, why did God give the promise that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem? Why did God tell the Jewish people that no matter what happens to you, no matter how you are dispersed into the four corners of the world, which, as Deuteronomy told them very clearly, you will be, and no matter how much time passes, you'll come back to that same spot. He could have just said, look, pick a nice place that you like. Go there, set yourselves up. I'll meet you there. I'm already there. Geography is important to God. We're going to find out why someday. I mean, I have a lot of conjecture of my own. You probably do too. But, but this is something that's very significant. This is why, again, I personally don't believe there will ever be a two-state solution for Israel. I don't believe Israel will ever be removed from the land. I don't, I don't believe any of the things that you hear going on in geopolitics, solutions to this problem and that problem, it's not going to happen. Um, the land, as he said there in verse 12, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and your descendants after you, I give this land. Go ahead and try and take it away from them because it isn't going to happen. God is the original landlord and he's got perfect, uh, perfect bona fides for, for what he grants. And so this... this um, this is a very significant moment where he's, he's giving um, this name Israel to Jacob once again. Uh, Israel, a couple of different meanings, contends with God or those whom God contends for. And, and so um, this, is, this is a title now. It's a name that God gives directly to, to Jacob. And so Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Now, drink offering is mentioned in several places in, in Scripture, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. You see this particular form of sacrifice. And um, it, it's one which Paul himself used the imagery from to describe his approach to his ministry. In the, in the letter, um, the second Timothy letter, which was the last one believed to have been written by Paul before he was martyred, in the fourth chapter, the sixth verse, as one of the last things he's saying in writing, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul looked at his life just the way he described what our life should look like in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. It is our reasonable service. Why is it reasonable? Because he's given us life. He's given us everything. And so what we do is we give our lives back to him. We pour out our lives as a drink offering. You know, wine, uh, wine and oil, um, drink offering would have been wine and he poured oil on it. These were things that were representative of, of affluent life, okay? These were things that were um, that were you know, not luxuries, but they were nice things that you are literally pouring out on this pillar as symbolic of the fact that, okay, Lord, I am surrendered. I am submitted. I am yours. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel and they went and there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. 
Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will, also, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Now Ben-Oni means the son of my suffering, or son of my sorrow, um, but I think Israel wisely changed it to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, uh, as we know from different references in Scripture to be at the right hand of authority was the most favored place. Jesus, for example, he sits at the right hand of the Father. One day we will be there with him. It's a, it's a position of prominence, power, etc. And so, uh, you know, here is the final link that Jacob slash Israel has with the true woman he loved, the one that he always wanted to marry, his favored wife. And she gives her life in childbirth to bring forth this son, Benjamin, who now is the youngest of the 12. There would be quite a number of years difference between, between Reuben, the oldest, and, and uh, Benjamin, the youngest. As time would go on, Benjamin, of the different tribes, had the most warlike posture. In fact, if you go through scripture, the different references to the soldiers from Benjamin they were legendary. They were legendary swordsmen. They were able to sling rocks with the, either the left or the right hand. They were able to shoot arrows with either the left or the right hand. They were fierce warriors. Um, there are several people from Scripture that were of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Ehud, Judges chapter 3, he was a great warrior that helped them overcome the Moabites. Uh, king Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite. Uh, Esther was a Benjamite and Mordecai. And of course, we know that Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So there are notable people that come from this tribe, but this tribe was almost wiped out. Uh, the story of that is in Judges chapter 19 and 20. You may recall the incident, but um, a concubine that belonged to a Levite who was traveling through the territory of Benjamin had the men of the city come and basically demand... Uh, they were actually looking for, for the Levite, but they ended up giving the, the concubine to these men who abused her, raped her, to the point where by morning she was dead. And so incensed was this Levite about the way in which she was treated that he did something even more strange. as He carved her body up into 12 pieces and sent it to the 12 tribes of Israel as, as kind of a, a shocking message that this is, this is the kind of atrocity that the men of Benjamin perpetrated. And when the tribes of Israel demanded that Benjamin give up the men who were responsible for the murder of that concubine, they refused. And so the tribes ganged up on Benjamin and, and they almost wiped out the tribe. Um, there was some recovery later on, but um, this little boy ultimately becomes the progenitor of a very fierce tribe of the 12 um, Verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Um, and Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. The end. Not another word is said about that in this narrative, which is 
Once again, shocking. Um, even that the law had not yet been given, I think it would have been well understood that you don't mess with your father's harem. I mean, she was a concubine. She wasn't one of the two wives. Nevertheless, this would be a monumental disrespect to his father. It would be a scandalous disrespect to his father. Now, we'll see at the end of Israel's life that the so-called bless slash curse that he places upon Reuben certainly takes this into account. But we do not see in the narrative any way in which his father disciplined him at that moment, which in my view is the reason why it happened at all. Because in the, in the few instances where we have seen the way Jacob deals with his kids, we don't see a strong hand as a disciplinarian, as a standard setter, as an ensign bearer for God. Um, and so these boys, uh, they were lacking in a moral compass, I think. And this is just another <laughs> example of that. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Nephtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre and Kirjah Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, again, this is a very sort of cryptic uh, account of the death of Isaac. We don't see any major exchange between Isaac and either of his sons. It could have been that by the time they heard of his passing or, or that he was about to be dying, uh, perhaps he was incoherent by then, so there was no opportunity for further dialogue with him. There's no extending of further blessings or cursings. Um, he passes, and both brothers come together yet again to bury their father. Uh, now, let me just spare me a few minutes here. I just want to just touch a couple things in chapter 36. We don't need to go through this particular chapter in any great detail, um, but um, it says there, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is, who is Edom. Esau ultimately will be settling in the, um, in, the, in the Negev Desert, basically, of what we would see today on a map. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 36, uh, after, they, after they bury their father, we read there that Esau took his wives his sons, his daughters, all the persons of his household, his cattle, all of his animals, all of his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Now, if you look on a map in your Bible, you'll see where Edom is. It's, it's well south of Jerusalem. It's in what today would be considered the, the Negev. Uh, we can see that what, what was ultimately promised by God to Abraham came to pass. Because remember, when, when Abraham and, and Sarah 
hatched their own plan and had Ishmael. And now, you know, they've got this son that's really from Hagar, not from Sarah. And Abraham's invested in this boy. He, he loved Ishmael as any father would his son. And when the Lord keeps talking to him about a son of promise, you know, Abraham even blurts out, oh, that Ishmael could live before you. And of course, God reminds him, no, 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 no. He's not the son of promise. He's the son of the flesh. But don't worry, I'll take good care of him. He will be the father of many nations himself. He will be well taken care of. And we see now here, that is indeed true. He is not in the line that will ultimately uh, bring forth the, the Israelites, but but he is somebody who has been shown favor by God, has been given a land, and has um, pretty amazing wealth. Now, we read here that he will become the father of the Edomites, and there is some extensive uh, description of the, of the uh, genealogy of Esau that we really don't need to go into. I believe it is firmly placed in Scripture simply to show that God's promise concerning Esau that he gave to Abraham was fulfilled. And you see this time and again, particularly in the Old Testament, that we are given details that might seem to the reader to be arcane details. Why do we need to know that? Well, almost always it's because it validates, it, it, it tells us that the promise that God had made in one respect or another has been fulfilled. And that's important for us to, to know. But this, uh, these Edomites that he, he is the, uh, the patriarch of, uh, they become an important people to the Israelites. In fact, they had favor from God. In Deuteronomy 23, 7, uh, God commands a special regard for the Edomites among Israel when he says, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. And um, in the days of Saul, the, the, Edom, the Edomites, Edom itself, was made subject to Israel and it was under tribute to Israel for a period of time until the days of Joram, the son of, uh, of Ahab, and then they became an independent nation again. But uh, they, were, they were an important people relative to the history of the Jews. In fact, Herod the Great, who was king when, um, when Jesus was born and was the one who was interested in killing the innocents, uh, he was an Edomite. And, um, and so they are a people that become significant as we progress through the history of Israel. So that's really what, what I wanted to just bring out in chapter 36. Next time we'll pick it up in, uh, in chapter 37. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the lessons it teaches, Lord, for the things that we know because, Lord, your word has laid out real examples, examples in the lives of people who were real, who had the same kind of fallibilities that we have, and yet, Lord, had the hand of God's grace upon them, and therefore were able to do great and mighty things, Lord. And that gives us just great confidence, Lord, for your loving care of us and your salvation of us. And so, Father, thank you for this time that we've had with you in your word we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.